Greetings, listeners. Welcome to Costume Station Zero. I'm sitting here, not sitting here, I'm Skyping here uh, with two really good friends of mine, uh, Meta Heaton and Brian Little, who many attendees of Gallifrey One will know for their fabulous Doctor Who monsters like the Vasha Narada, the Ood, and the Gangers. Um, so, Meta, Brian, welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, I feel like we could almost end on a high note there. Here <laughs> <laughs> um, it all be downhill. <laughs> Um, let, let's start at the very beginning, which I know is, is uh, going back far beyond the realm of Doctor Who for you guys. Uh, what attracted you to the whole hobby of costuming? I grew up in Sweden, and in Sweden they don't really do any costuming. It's kind of changing. Halloween's kind of starting up there now. But when I was a kid, uh, there were two opportunities to dress up. Uh, one was Easter, when you dressed up as a witch. <laughs> and the other was... Uh, uh, 13th of December, which is St. Lucia Day, and you dress up in a white uh, dress, and that's it, pretty much. So it, it was a little sad, and I always kind of enjoyed dressing up. So there was the occasional costume party, but that was it. Oh, so when I, when I came here, I, it was like, oh, you mean I can dress up even though I'm an adult? Yeah. This is awesome! <laughs> I hate to say it, but I was costuming because I liked the idea of wearing the things I make. So as, as far as the Swedes would think, they'd probably think I'm very unpractical. Because uh, I had no particular purpose other than I liked doing it. Um, I think it was more that I realized from going to... Actually, Meta took me to my first convention. Oh, gosh, over 15 years ago now? I don't know the numbers, but uh, when I first went there, I had, I had no costumes of my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some stuff I had made for a sci-fi film I did for a college project. And when I went to this... Uh, so it was actually Bacon. It was the Barry Sci-Fi Convention she took me to. I went there, and like half the people were wearing costumes, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I feel naked! I must run home and grab my only costume I own, which was one I made for a sci-fi film I did." <laughs> and I went in. It kind of had like a look of a uh, of like a uh, a Jawa, but kind of blue and taller. It was like a tall elfin Jawa. Elfin Jawa. It's like it had like a long pointy um, hood and had like interesting like, you know, patches and stuff on it. But I was just like, that was what got me into it. I was just like, wow, I could wear stuff I make. I want to do more of this. I think then the, immediately the next year I made a giant foam sword and uh, foam hair and I went as Cloud from uh, Final Fantasy VII. I think that was my first actual I think I, I'd been costuming a few years at that point. Uh, I moved to the U.S. in 95 and then I sort of immediately jumped into the Star Trek conventions and got myself a pair of elf ears and so that qualifies then as your first costume, then um, the uh, the blue Jawa, <laughs> and uh, technically counts as my first actual costume. Actually, no, no, not really, because we have Halloween here, and we used to do that. Like my my parents always encouraged us to make our own costumes when we were younger, and that's kind of where I got some of the skills to do the stuff I was doing. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, because I used to make cardboard robots and and uh, duct tape bats and stuff like that. You know, just it was like a whole. It was it looked horrible from. From when you look at the photos from now, you're like, oh, that's not so awesome. But back when you were a kid, that stuff was cool. And the, but the, the year that we actually started going out, our, our first kiss, I was wearing uh, the outfit for Leela from Futurama. So nice. I, uh, I had like a little pinhole opening in front of one eye, so I didn't see very much. Yeah, I was but, wearing uh, the blue jawa. <laughs> yes, you were. So then, uh, Meta, what was your uh, first costume then? I ran around with a towel and a plastic bag on my head pretending I was a superhero. I don't really count that either. <laughs> I think we all did that. Although that, that, that oh, improvised I know traffic what it was. cone helmet was I know cool. what it was. It was uh, Spock's civilian robe from uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture with, with long sleeves and white embroidery 
uh, and uh, you see it for about two minutes in the beginning, and that's it. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I remember that costume. That's cool. That's cool. Not not the black one he shows up in later when he gets on the Enterprise, right? Uh, it's the one he sort of steps through the uh, sliding. It's got doors a bunch and... of silver writing down the side of it, doesn't it? No, no, it's, right. it's embroidery. white embroidery. Yeah, it's white embroidery lettering, and like, yeah, the one sleeve is lower, and it kind of has like a weird swoop to it. No, both sleeves. Well, are mostly. Okay. Thank you for filling in the details. <laughs> Which actually, I think. Looks gorgeous in photos, but unfortunately, up close, it, it does have. Fun. Hey, hey. <laughs> what? First time he's told me this. No, she, she's <laughs> told me that. That's actually. I'm just re- regurgitating what you said. So, um, so basically, you guys have been costuming for about what 17, 18 years, in and in a non, you know, going above and beyond the Halloween type capacity. Well, I mean, it was always been Hulk costuming for me until I hit Masquerade, and that's when it sort of changed. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why. I was really intimidated by Masquerade, so I spent probably at least 10 years just Hulk costuming and, and refusing to enter Masquerades because I wasn't going to be stupid on a stage, damn it. <laughs> and then Brian sort of... We had, we had made these spy versus spy costumes. And actually, I think it starts before that. Actually. No, no, it was the spy versus no, spy. No, it started before that. No, you that... guys encouraged me to take my Star Wars okay. AST costume on on into a masquerade. I I did it and I loved it. Like I don't know what it was, but it, it previously smashed all expectations of the time I went. I walked into a masquerade and it was just kind of like, "What is this? I'm leaving." And then it was it was so much fun that I roped her into doing it. And now you no, but yeah, it's uh. <laughs> We, we had done these spy versus spy costumes, and the year before, Brian had tried his first masquerade. And from my perspective, he had been sitting in the green room for four hours while mm. I was running around partying. So I thought it seemed like a really stupid way to spend your time. Uh, <laughs> so he said, oh, please, can't we enter these spy versus spy costumes? I said, fine, okay, fine. This one time, and then I'm never doing it again. And that was, uh, we just did our 13th masquerade, I think. I so I'm a damn liar. <laughs> Are we talking? And we're talking masquerades beyond Gallifrey Run, right? Oh yeah, we're yes. ta- that was that was uh, WonderCon. That was WonderCon two thousand seven. We did WonderCon two th- two years in a row. We also did Baycon two three years in a row. I mean, we used to do every year, and then it kind of got to the point where you need a year off once in a while. So yeah, I, I did more than one. Now, what would you recommend to people jumping into cosplay or, or costuming that they do? The masquerade route, or that they just stick to the hall costuming? Ah, this is a great question, actually. This okay. is, no, this is one of my favorite topics because I think a lot of people just don't quite understand masquerades or are terrified of them. I'll let Meta go and uh, I'll jump in. I think I honestly would advise someone to, to just get at least a year or two worth of, of just sort of meat on your bones and, and talking to other costumers and sort of exploring a few different techniques uh, because I think... A lot of the time, it's. I mean, you spend so much time on a costume. You you are so intimate with it in a sense, uh, and you spend so many late nights with it that you will probably have a completely different take on your costume than than people that seeing it for the first time will. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I think you might be unprepared for a the, the competition <laughs> and b that the audience doesn't always love your character as much as you do. And that especially goes for people who do their own oh, characters. Oh yeah, their own characters. So, something they've um, invented. I mean, I've seen people come up on stage and something, no one else has, has any idea what it is. The act goes on for two, three minutes. The audience sort of is over it, and they can't understand why, why they don't do very well. But so I, I, and I, I think going in and watching a masquerade or two first uh, is a really good idea, too, just sort of to get a feel for the format and what it feels like for the, for the audience to watch. Absolutely, absolutely. Having said that, I do always love seeing novices in the masquerade, but I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that they're going to get scared off if that's sort of their first convention. Oh, there's a masquerade, great, let me join it. And then it can be a very overwhelming experience, and I just sort of fear that, that some people get scared off by it. Mm-hmm. A, the amount of effort that's involved in sitting in the green room and waiting and filling in all the paperwork and going and to the following instructions meetings. and all this other stuff. Yeah. It's, there's also some other points in there too. Like uh, it's also good for kids to start early because they get a yeah. feel for it, and they're not as intimidated by the fact that they made it out of duct tape and cardboard. Uh, they just want to show off their creation, and for them to learn early about how the process works, they actually get more into it. And those kids, as they grow up, you've you've probably seen this now in the last five to six years of the younger crowd at, at Galley. Oh, yeah. 
really take hold and they're really showing up and, and each year they're trying to better themselves, which is kind of like what we tried doing like years and years ago where it's like, we kind of got into it. We're like, Oh, we could do better. We could do better. Yeah, no, it's, it becomes somewhat of a, the costuming disease, you know, where, uh, you just, you constantly strive to either make a particular costume better or certainly make your next project better. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I've never heard anyone say called a disease before. I've always called it an addiction. Kind of like you know, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a substance abuse. It's like you, you do the thing, and then you're like, I must have more. <laughs> it didn't come off the way you intended. You, you get the bug of like, I can do it better. And if it came off the way you intended, you go, I can do something even better than that. Like it, you sort of, you, you're in a competition with yourself. Yeah, almost. you're trying to top yourself all the time. Brian has stated that uh, one day he will get up on stage and they. 15 foot tall robot because that's the direction he feels he's heading in. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish him luck in getting a vehicle to get that to a convention, but uh, knock yourself out. I'll get a Mac truck. Well, how often does, well, wow, this is a, this is a many layered question, I guess, but um, how often would you say that uh, the material guides your costume, not just in terms of the final look or what interests you, but also in terms of what you just said, transporting it to said event? Mm. Oh, wow, I don't think transporting <laughs> has ever come into our mind when building a costume. <laughs> Cassandra is one of those uh, things. We had not considered how hard that floppy bastard would be to transport. Yeah, <laughs> now, now that you say that, Bob, I'm wondering wh- why have we never considered transportation when we came up with the costume idea? Like, I don't know if you saw <laughs> the pictures of the Star Wars Legos yet, but oh my goodness, trying to find a vehicle those would fit in, we ended up having to go with a minivan and folding most of the seats down. And then just loading everything on top of all the boxes. Like they literally had to sit on top of each other, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Back to sort of the other half of the question. I think they guide our choice of costume a lot. Because, I mean, take Doctor Who. When, when we look at the pictures of, of characters, I mean, all costumers that are into Doctor Who, when the new series comes out, is just one long research season, right? Like sure. in that one costume that you're going to do. When we look at them, for for the doctor, I don't think I've seen a doctor yet that I actually want to do because that would really mainly be sewing. Unfortunately, someone did the one I wanted to do this year, and I, I kind of figured it might happen. I wanted to do the the Matt Smith with the uh, facial hair and the uh, straight jacket with the suspenders. And well, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. and it was well done. So I figure I'm not doing that one. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that Steven's version? His was really good. Yeah, he was he looked so good in that. We're, we're sort of the 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 awkward women at the party, afraid that someone else is going to wear the same dress. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. So try to pick something either obscure or weird that we don't think anyone else is going to do, and it hasn't always worked. Yeah. I showed up in a masquerade once as um, Midna from the uh, Zelda game series. Mm-hmm. She's this black and white character, the Twilight Princess yeah. uh, game. And uh, in the green room was a 16 year old in the same outfit. And in the audience was a five-year-old in the same outfit. And there were some really awkward moments that night. Uh, the 16-year-old refused to talk to me. The five-year-old uh, kidnapped my, uh, my link, which was in wolf shape, which was Brian, and rode him around the lobby. So uh, she was actually the right scale to my character <laughs> in the wolf costume. So they actually got pictures of her riding around me because she was so sad she didn't get to see me in the audience. I, I, I think maybe I'm just sort of chickening out on that because it's, like, if you're showing up in the same costume as someone else, it's sort of inevitable that you're going to get compared. Yeah, and someone's going to go, oh, that person did it Even better. if it's not a competition, people are going to go, yeah, that guy was so much better. We are pretty harsh. It's like we're probably harsher on ourselves, but you're just as afraid that someone else is thinking that, I guess. Mm. That someone else did it better. <laughs> so I think we just tend to pick stuff that we just think no one's going to do this. But... Uh, I must say, we also have done a thing where we always create things that don't exist in the real world. Yeah, we've had a bit of an obsession. Pre Doctor Who, anyways. Anyway. No, even in Doctor Who, uh, we the Cassandra. We oh, did, yeah, that's right. Cassandra was a three D uh, image. Yes, she was CGI, and we made her out of silicone. We, we didn't. <laughs> right. So people always keep going. Oh, you should make the mouth move. Yeah, you try pouring that. Try pouring us a robot mouth movement piece over with silicone over it. That's really tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Yourself out, man. Now we've done a lot of of two dimensional uh, comic book characters, a lot of two dimensional cartoon characters, a lot of CGI stuff. I mean, we we've sort of managed to really beat ourselves up by picking stuff that doesn't actually have a three dimensional representation. And so, 
trying to make a three-dimensional thing, which is yourself in the costume, look good as a two-dimensional thing from every angle can be kind of tricky. Well, that's interesting. I wonder, does, does that, if something has an actual model, does that count as not having a 3D representation, or does it? Well, that just means someone sculpted a... I'm, I'm thinking of Spy versus Spy, for example, oh, yeah. because they, they're drawn definitely in 2D, yeah. and uh, there's just certain aspects to them that don't make sense. Yeah. That's where toys and action figures come in handy. Um, but that actually raises an interesting point. So if let's say there's there's always the argument of going recreation versus original in terms of character choice. But this is actually almost a weird third tangent choice of, okay, it's an established character, but you're not recreating something that was an actual costume on television or stage or, yep. or film. You're trying to interpret a costume that has only been drawn or done as CGI, and would you say that qualifies as closer to an original creation or recreation? I still count that as a recreation, yeah. uh, and I, I think you have an automatic bonus if you're doing masquerades in recreations, mm -hmm. because you don't have to present something and then make the audience like it and then like your costume. I mean, it's, it's almost a little easy at times if you pick something that people have a really uh, emotional connection to. It's all you kind of have to do is show up and, and be good enough. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go nuts because, like, I watched that show when I was five. Right. <laughs> but but I, people that can pull off original are, are absolutely spectacular. Uh, I'm not sure I am. I feel we're not quite there yet, but I yeah. feel I, I feel like you know you can always learn from someone else, and that's what I've always liked about the uh, the fandom costuming slash cosplay. I, I differentiate the two. Um, universe is interesting because everyone is willing to help out everyone else. Like if you've never tried a specific thing and you know someone who has, they are totally willing to tell you how they did it. But in regards to original, I mean, we have done original characters because obviously your first costume was an original character. You, Which one? you designed it, the little uh, blue oh, yeah, the alien. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what happens most of the time is you show up to some convention party and someone goes, what are you supposed to be? Oh, yeah. You mm -hmm. get that question 30 times in an evening, you're kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of over this. I mean, you get it even with obscure, you know, quote-unquote established characters, and that's a whole other thing of knowing what you're getting <laughs> into, of course. But The first joint costume we ever did was the Spanish Inquisition from Monty Python. Awesome. Uh, this guy at the convention, the older guy, had no idea what we were, but thought that I was making a political commentary <laughs> on the Catholic Church and the child molestation cases. And I'm going, yeah, that would have been interesting, but at a sci-fi convention? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I was going to say, so you're, you're basically saying it's not even so much they're calling you the wrong character, you just don't want to be called um, um, a subpar costumer, is that it? No, no, no. I think he's absolutely <laughs> no, correct. No, he, he is correct. It's, it's not so much that I feel like I'm being called a subpar costumer, but I try and strive for accuracy in a costume, especially with Cassandra. We really built her to scale. Like Meta insisted that the base be to scale with the body. And I was like, how are we going to get it through a door, Meta? There's <laughs> wheelchair access is only three feet wide, and Cassandra's base is four and a, a quarter. Ooh. And I'm like, ooh, so she had to become a part in three pieces to get her through a traditional uh, hotel door. Yeah, we. Like a, 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 she a she has room. to come through a half, lot of doors uh, sideways half, and half an and half. <laughs> like the base has to literally be uh, picked up and pulled in and uh, brought in. Uh, what do you call it? Parallel, not parallel. We we had one of our more public uh, <laughs> costuming arguments trying to get Cassandra through a door while really a really tired. Door? Oh, and was uh, there was a miscommunication, and uh, I thought Brian said that he had the door. And he uh, said, said that door. I should hold the door. <laughs> so I let the door go. It slams into Cassandra. She flops out of the base because she's actually held in with, with clips. Giant binder clips. And she just flops over on the floor in sort of a silicone pile. It was a, a fair amount of four-letter word in the hotel lobby. That yeah. one. And that one. Our, our, one of our friends that came up at the time, we were like, do you need help? Oh, I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, so I, I just said, he, he was getting very, very angry with me, so I said, calm down, Brian. And he said, shut up. And I said, calm the bleep down. And he said, shut the, the bleep, bleep up. up. And this kept going for about two minutes, just back and forth, those two phrases. And uh, people still quote that about five years later. Oh, if it was so much being high strung, but it's one of those oh, things we were where very high it's one of those things where it's very stressful to like we were talking about earlier. It's very stressful to move a very large costume <laughs> through 
in and out of uh, hotels for the convention. And oh my goodness, when you when you arrive late, tired, and unprepared, and your costume <laughs> gets destroyed by a swinging double door, yeah, you she say was some fine. rude things. <laughs> now she, she we fine. fixed her up. She's okay. it wasn't as bad as the time we almost got run over by the fire engines trying to get back from the masquerade. <laughs> Because uh, uh, there was a fire somewhere and uh, Cassandra wasn't moving fast enough. Yeah, we had her, we had her partially assembled uh, going across a, a street and a fire truck came flying by and we barely got across the street before the boxes got hit. That would have been horrible. Have been like, that would have been ugly. That would be hard to explain why there's a flat silicon woman in the street. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would, this, would that qualify as uh, your, your worst costuming experience? No, no, we've had no. Oh, wait, wait, no. no Defining worst costume experience. <laughs> do you mean like uh, masquerade malfunction, or do you mean like, oh my gosh, my costume is showing part of my anatomy? <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, I guess we have different levels going on here. Uh, you know, I, I guess I, I mean, to me, anything masquerade related kind of stays as worst masquerade experience. I guess I see it as you know a bad experience you had on the floor or even just one that caused you to actually bleed or fall asleep over it or something oh it's if there's no blood or tears it's not a costume uh, it's not a costume <laughs> That's my, our motto, my my latest silurian uh, belt has a sizable blood stain that i just sort of creatively folded over cuz i was out of silk and i was half done and i wasn't going to change it <laughs> Most I'd have to say most of our masquerade costumes, especially, have at least some some tears, like literal actual tears <laughs> on the fabric and blood. And at some point, we probably got really mad and tore a piece. I don't know, but yeah, almost every true masquerade costume we've had has had actual blood and sweat and, and tears. I, I maybe not all in blood, but but sweat eventually. Them, it always gets sweat eventually, <laughs> yes. but the blood and tears are compulsory in the in the building process. So let me rephrase it then. What has been your most challenging costume? Because all of them, to me, look terribly challenging. Oh, that's easy. Oh, the oud. That is so easy. Yeah, so we, we were <laughs> doing the oud. I, had, I, I hadn't... I'd done silicone before because we'd done Cassandra, and the oud are, are made from the same type of and material. We, and we thought we knew what we were doing. And so this was going to be my first two-part mold. And uh, I, I did take some shortcuts. on like Instead of doing an inner and outer mold, I did a slush mold, which is fine for, for that costume. But... Uh, We'd done all the research, and the only thing that was left to do, we'd cast everything, all the tentacles. We'd cast about uh, 30 tentacles, 30. Uh, just to have a little bit extra, and we'd cast the heads. And so the problem with silicone is nothing sticks to it. So you have to paint it with pigment mixed with more silicone. Mm -hmm. and there's this one type of silicone that you can mix with uh, some fairly heavy-duty solvents, and then you can actually airbrush the silicone pigment onto there. So I spent mm, six hours out in the cold airbrushing these tentacles, and uh, we hung them up, and they're supposed to set in really sort of half an hour, yeah. but it takes a couple hours technically. Get up in the morning, they're not set. They're still gooey. Uh, we cleaned them all <laughs> off, and we thought, well, this whole airbrushing thing took too long, let's just paint them. Uh, that didn't set. We cast a whole other batch and painted that. That didn't set. Um, so we were completely tentacle-less ouds. Yeah. Uh, it got down to the point we had to where special order we had the special order a faster curing silicone because otherwise we were not going to finish on time till the convention because we only had four tentacle molds and we had to have it flown in. And there was crying on this one because it was sort of like uh, there was a the year Louise Page was judging and we were uh, like, yeah, to be judged by Louise. I <laughs> in, in retrospect, <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, no. no. Uh, she was she was very nice, but she she gave us a hard but fair criticism. But um, yeah, no, the tentacles just wouldn't set. It was it was awful. We ended up with a bucket of about seventy, 70 leftover tentacles. Seventy two, roughly. Yeah. But we made the uh, yeah that it was really awful. They was crying. I had to go in and ask for more time off for work because that was the only way we were going to finish the costumes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it, it was actually the, the the funny part was it was that those that last. I think it's the last three days were the most stressful because we ended up having to lose a lot of sleep. Yeah. Like, remember that Brian, night? Brian didn't sleep for about the last two days, and he would actually, well, technically he would sleep in 15-minute intervals between tentacles curing. Yep. <laughs> I would literally crash on the couch, and then Meta would time it, and I'd have to get up and do it again. It's horrible. Oh, that was awful. Oh, you know we, we, made, we made lemonade out of the lemons this year because we, uh, brought, the we brought the tentacles to Galley, and we... Uh, uh, pretended to sell them as uh, Oud Industries hot dogs. I, I remember that. That was hilarious. 
So you know it's funny. Uh, you're uh, like like months later, we've we've seen people posting photos on Facebook of their ood tentacles in their luggage uh, at the airport. Uh, Th- those tentacles traveled, man. Yeah, even even in their homes back at their in their home countries. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm gonna I'm just gonna leap right into Doctor Who here. Uh, the first year I remember you guys was doing the Cassandra with the uh, moisturizers in um, uh, what was that 2008? I want to say. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, no, I think it was. I think that was our first gallery. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, oh, it was. Wow, great. Um, so uh, now from there, I know you guys did uh, the Vashanarada, mm-hmm. the Oud, yep. um, Sutek, which is my personal favorite because I'm such an old school Tom Baker fanboy. Me too. That's why I had to do it. Yeah, and by so, the way, I beat you to it. But I that was my next one on my my list of things to do was Sutek. You could have an army of Sutex. Dude, army of Sutex? No, actually, you know what? I was thinking, you know what we could do? Uh, we could make the robots, and then someone could do Sutex. Um, like, you could even do, uh, the, not the, the servant of Sutex, you know, the, the solid black mask one where he's got the big robe. So, so you know if Bob gets any sort of audience here, those co- costumes are totally stolen, right? right. <laughs> actually, uh, on my to-do list, I'm not sure if this will happen with all the stuff on my to-do list, is I do want to do the mummy uh, robots, and uh, one of them, obviously. And if I do, we are totally going to have to storm the halls of Galley. Well, the thing is, if someone else, or, I mean, we should probably get someone else to make the Servant of Sutek, because I really like that kind of, it looks just like the robot, but it kind of looks like a cross between the robots, or the robot mummies and uh, Sutek, where it's got the black head with the kind of the, the mummy face shape in it. Right, yeah. Sure, I'm talking about the guy who comes out and kills the uh, the guy who thought he was the servant of Sutek. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great costume too. Yeah, that would be an easy one. Yeah, no. So if if I uh, if I can actually make it happen, then yeah, we gotta we gotta rock the pyramids of Mars because I'm actually doing the pyramids of Mars Tom Baker costume as well. Nice. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh huh. But and then of course that marvelous Silurian new series Silurian you did. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, that that makeup was just kind of unbelievable. Do you want to talk a little about how you achieve that? Yeah. Sure. Uh, no, the funny thing is, like, the first rev, I don't know if it's the first or second rev you're talking about, because the first rev was actually not that good. Uh, it was It was quite, it had a lot of problems. Because she, um, she did the rest deck and the that, regular. That one, is, one. that one is, yet again, uh, the same material as, as Cassandra and the Oud, uh, but the second rev actually has a modification in that it has, um, wait, I'm getting way ahead of myself. It's, I mean, it's a green lizard, is what it is, but it's a green lizard with a lot of texture. So, uh, I mean, I, I did a, I got a, uh, full head cast done on myself and then I sculpted the head on top of it. And that took a couple of weeks because every little scale has to sort of be, and then, uh, you make a, a soft inner mold of that. And then you make a hard outer mold on that. And then you take the whole thing apart and then you don't do what I do, which is to not plan out your, uh, uh, mold lines properly so that it won't come off again uh, and you have to chip sections of it off uh, and then you, you take it apart you now have the inner sort of your head shape and then you have the outer molds and then you uh, essentially pour silicone into that and you end up with a, a, a mask now in the show they actually did a two part solution so the back of the head is hard and the front of the face is really soft hmm. I, I had instead a, a semi-soft one piece because I have to apply it to myself in a hotel room probably with a hangover. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did do a different it, It's, it's kind of like a giant lizard balaclava. You pull it yeah, over your head. Yeah, it totally <laughs> is, actually. I never thought of that. Uh, yeah, top it up with some makeup and, uh, and you're good to go and if you're ready to sweat a lot. Uh, it's a party in there. I understand completely. <laughs> Any facial prosthetics? Uh, not so much the prosthetics, but dealing with the heat. Half of those costumes I wear, especially that Morbius uh, this year, um, I pretty oh. much was sweating like an oven. Did you Did you manage to fit any fans in there? Yeah, Morbius. No, no. I mean, you probably probably could tuck a couple of small ones in there now, but you know, we were we were pushing the deadline a bit. You uh, should get like a butthole and just put a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I think no, what she I, meant is down near the posterior <laughs> where you can't see the fan hole, you put a fan and have it either blow cool air in or have it suck the warm air out. I, I think we lucked out in that we had an experience early on where, where fans became sort of a number one priority. Which yes, was, we, we, we always planned that in. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was the spy versus spy because their faces are cone-shaped. And we built the faces and I put it on because mine was done first and Brian's kind of going from the outside. How is it? And I was just dying there because I was exhaling. And then breathing That air. air was just sitting down in the nose cone. And then I would inhale it back in again. 
So within about 30 seconds, you were short of breath. Breathing your own like carbon. Suffocating. <laughs> so uh, we stuck fans down in, in the nose cones. And ever since then, I think if we have any big headgear yeah. that isn't makeup, fans is a must mm -hmm. because you're going to just fall over. I also have friends that do a lot of cold packs, uh, like those little freezer packs, stick them in everywhere. Oh, yes. Uh, because overheating and falling over is not going to make your costume look awesome. <laughs> or it's not safe for your costume. Oh, yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> costume preservation first. Uh, yeah. Actually, what would you say are your top practical tips uh, along those lines? Safety? <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, I mean, make make sure you eat. I I can't even stress that enough. Make sure you get make sure you eat and and get um, liquids, but not too much of them, because then you have to run to the bathroom at the worst possible time. Indeed. Uh, also, make sure that you can actually go to the bathroom in your costume. That's also a key thing. We've had. But no. That's not what you meant. <laughs> no, not... Wait. What? Misunderstood the question. <laughs> Is this what you were actually asking for, Bob? Because I don't. Well, this kind of thing is important to know. No, that people do forget this. It's just as you mentioned, uh, forgetting about. Hey, we have to actually transport this in a car or an airplane, God forbid, and get yeah. it to a convention. Uh, one, you... one important one important thing I would think is actually being able to get out of the costume because yeah. I think uh, some people wear a lot of sort of extra gadgets and things, and if you get to that spot where the heat is getting to you and, and you, you to need to get out hurry. now. Yeah. Either have a quick exit. Or have or, a buddy. Yeah, or have a buddy that knows how to get you out. Yeah, like you should really have a handler if you're wearing, a, like kind of like your costume that you guys just made, the uh, Morbius one. You really need a handler for that one because you've got a big head that's stuck on top of the costume that you can't really take off yourself, I'm assuming, right? You need help to get out of that? Absolutely. Exactly. You had a handler. We had the same thing for a couple of our costumes where they were just too bulky for us to actually get around and actually unzip ourselves or unbutton ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you really need that person to kind of guide you through the hallways to, to make mm -hmm. sure people aren't, you know, you're not crashing into people or, or uh, running over small children. Yeah, and pick someone that knows what they're in for so they don't abandon you halfway through. And, exactly. and yeah. Preferably if, so, if you have a friend who just wants to hang out with you and doesn't particularly need to be in a costume or is wearing like a hall costume, kind of like a, uh, I don't know, if you're wearing a, what do you call it, Tom Baker costume and, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty much taking care of yourself, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. There you um, go. Your piece of advice, which is if you're going to dress as a villain and you intend to go to a party where people will be drinking, uh, stay in well-lit areas. I have gotten punched at least once by a drunk person who apparently didn't like that particular villain. Uh, <laughs> or I didn't like the character that much. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Just Again, they're getting a little too into it, a little too into the, uh, the atmosphere of make-believe. Um, now, for this year's Gallifrey, you guys did uh, the the gangers. The um, yes, almost, yes. Now, do you want to explain a bit about that? Because I thought they looked fantastic. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. That was actually our our last ditch effort at just having your costume. Yeah, we we had to abandon. Uh... We we had a whole masquerade plan. Uh, it was planned out about four months in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, then I hurt my back, so, so I couldn't work on any. We had plan two, <laughs> which was so, the gangers. Uh, yeah, the gangers was about a week and a half of let's throw something together. So it was. Uh, I figured the the face cast was very similar to the front of the Silurian in in approach, and I felt I'd learned a, learned a lot of lessons from the Silurian. So I figured uh, I would I would apply that because the ganger face is so smooth. It's essentially supposed to even out any harsh features in the face. So it's a fairly fast sculpt compared to something that's much more textured. Yeah, and my armor was kind of a rush job too. I actually literally cut out a piece of foam the shape of the armor. And I just covered it in Vaseline and then just heated up Wonderflex using a, uh, what you call it, um, or, or thermoplastic for people who don't know what Wonderflex is. Uh, heated it up with a, uh, what, what's that thing called? I, oh, a steamer. Uh, steamer. And then just shaped it over. When it cooled off, I just pried it off and then just sculpted it over it with like a two-part epoxy. And then that's why, you know, I kind of did a rush job instead of doing like Bondo or something much more severe. Uh, so it's kind of a little bit more of a rushed kind of armor. But I think it's the first outfit where we just so well, I you you just wore your normal face, nothing yeah. in front of it. I just wore normal clothes, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, they were specially made for that costume, and they <laughs> were very impractically plastic backed. Yeah. But uh, other than that, it was just normal clothes. It was actually one of the more comfortable costumes we worn together because yep, yep. it wasn't super hot yeah. and it wasn't. And the other thing is, we played to our strengths, which is you've gotten pretty good at doing like the silicon based. Things I'm still, you know, pretty. I, I pretty much still predominantly like to do armor, and that's kind of what I've gotten good at doing. And so I basically threw the the armor suit together. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was it was it sort of a uh, when when faced with a severe time limit, play to your strength. That's actually exactly. really good advice. No, it's fantastic advice. Uh, know know your skill sets and then play to them. Absolutely. But but even more importantly, do expand. Yeah, um, that's what we try to do anyways. I mean, a lot of people want to start with something really complicated, get discouraged when that doesn't come out the way they intended. Yeah, to, you want to start small. Up. You start with something that's sort of reasonably within your reach. And then for every costume you build, add something new that you didn't know how to do. It yeah. might not come out the first time, but you might learn for the next so time. One, one thing I, I like to do is when, when people come up to me and go, oh my god, I love your costume. I, 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 can't, I can't imagine how to make that thing. Uh, blah, blah, you know, like they, they're, like, they're in awe of the actual process. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I started with duct tape and cardboard. You know, and, and you can get to this level. It's not, it's not hard. It's just you just have to commit to the resources, try out things, work your way through it. Because... Some of the materials that we're working with take a lot of safety. You have to know how to use them. Uh, like Meta's got a lot of chemistry involved in her costuming <laughs> now, which can go horribly wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't recommend that with her first time costume. Oh, we did actually have an interesting <laughs> costume uh, malfunction. Meta made a fireball in the kitchen while trying to make Cassandra's <laughs> brain liquid. Yeah, right? I am. Fire. <laughs> no, I, I went. So I. What you can do if you want to learn more about unique uh, materials is you can go to sort of local suppliers of those that kind of stuff. We yeah. have we have a place up in in uh, Northern California called Douglas and Sturgis that sells a lot of those materials that mm-hmm. are used, like like the silicones, like um, uh, a lot of plastics and, and and resins and stuff like that. And they are really happy to help you out with questions. So that's a good way to get started. And they've even t- they even teach classes occasionally throughout the year, so you can yes. learn some of the uh, advanced. And, and and there's also websites for that kind of stuff. But uh, the first time I went there, I didn't really ask the questions. And uh, <laughs> my friend said, oh, this translucent sort of rubbery stuff would be great for the innards of the Cassandra brain canister. Uh-huh. And I went, yeah, sure. Heat it up on the stove, uh, and it sort of slowly melts. But you have to do it very And then carefully. you can pour it into a shape, and then it'll stick to that shape. Well, um, Apparently, it melts super, super slowly, so I tried to speed up the process a little and turn up the heat. I turn around, and I just hear this sort of foof, and I turn around in time to see a fireball lifting the glass lid above the pan, and then sort of the, the glass lid crashes back down again. Uh, <laughs> I gave up on that material um, and returned it all, and they were very nice to take it back to. Yeah. That, 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 that's one of my, my things I also like to try to harp on is safety is key, especially if you're working with something you've never worked with before. Mm-hmm. Ask people who have or at least do the research online uh, because sometimes you can't hurt yourself severely with especially a lot of the chemical-based stuff. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And even if you're just dealing with the fumes of that stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Few, like even, even Bondo has an amazing amount of uh, particles that can get in your lungs and hurt you bad, yeah. so you have to wear a rebreather or something that has a special particle control <laughs> in the filter, so you don't breathe in that horrible uh, powder. And you would be surprised how many costumers we know that has made the fundamental mistake of spray painting indoors. Indoors, yes. Oh my god, I cannot believe how many people I know do that. I've done it. <laughs> well, you're crazy. <laughs> I have done it in grave emergencies, but yes, it's not something I like to do. <laughs> <laughs> think about it ahead of time because most likely it's going to be three in the morning. You're going to be stressed out, and you haven't slept enough, so you're not going to be thinking it through. Um, sometimes you just need to take a breath, or you need to go to bed first, and and then deal with it in the morning because some things uh, cannot be rushed. Yeah, agreed. Now back to the idea of uh, where to get some of these materials. Now, if you're just starting out and you don't have a very specialty supply shop near you, you know, if you're not lucky enough to to live near that area, would you recommend going online and ordering it that way, or would you have any tips for someone who just has, say, a Michaels nearby? Uh, Michaels can go a long way, actually. Yeah, uh, but oh, Michaels I, com- combined with Tap as well. Yes, Tap Plastic. I think that's a local one, actually. Oh, oh it's Tap. Well, there's other no, but, uh, that are like Tap. The, the place that we go to, Douglas and Sturgis, they do uh, online orders across the country. It's A-R-T-S-T-U-F dot com. It's an art stuff with just one One F. F, Um, There's also, I know, places down. I'm not specifically recommending that one. It's just I happen to know the website address. But uh, there's also places down in L.A. where I've done emergency orders from, I think, Reynolds is a place that sells a lot of that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, If you want to get into silicone and resins, uh, the, the stuff that we tend to buy is called Smooth On. Uh, it's the actual company. Yeah, smooth-on. It's a company that does uh, a lot of those sort of two-part things you have to pour together and mix like an a, and, an and, AB something, mix. and something happens. Yeah. 
the um, uh, advantage of, of their stuff is that it's a little easier to use than some of the professional stuff. I mean, it is fairly high quality. I, I would call it professional in a sense. But I met one of the judges from Face Off, and he says that's like the. Uh, I was like, oh yeah, I love that sort of one-stop shop for amateurs. I'm going, oh great, that's what I'm using. The other silicones that you can use that the pros tend to use tend to be like, you know, ten grams of this to a liter of that, and it can be very hard to use. Smoothon does fairly consistently equal parts A and B, both by weight put them into and a volume. And stir. Yeah, put it together and stir, and, and they easy. have. They have little tutorial videos online. So if you really well, want to get started in, in casting soft and hard stuff, yeah. and that's they, and a they good provide one. Uh, books and DVDs as well. Yes, they do, and they even have mold making kits where you sort of get everything in one box. So like like, wanna, like a beginner's kit. Yeah, thing. we recommend that kind of stuff uh-huh. if you want to try getting into things like silicon or resin or something you haven't mixed any chemicals together at all. And that was probably one of the best masquerade uh, prizes we've ever won. Was we got. Two mold making kits, one for brush on molds and one for pour on molds for uh for one, for one of our costumes. Yeah. Um I want to step back a little bit to the Vasha Narada, which I know we we kind of covered a bit on the uh that KTEH segment we did uh, several years back. Thank you for having us on there. Uh, oh, my you pleasure. Guys, you guys did a great job. We yeah. were just We felt like dorks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you felt like dorks. Oh my gosh, look at us. You, you look like pros. Yeah, you guys really look like you'd actually worked at KTH before. <laughs> Better some of their hosts oh, at yeah. the time, which that station is sadly now sort of also gone. Really, yeah. really, it, gone it, it is technically there, but they used to have their own production crews and stuff, and mm-hmm. that's all gone. They're they're now sort of a subsidiary of another station. Oh, that's so sad. I know they had a, val- a volunteer crew when we did it, and it felt very much like you know uh, a step away from you know homegrown fan film. But uh, yeah, it was a good time. I'm glad we did it. The reason for that was it was literally in its dying breath. This was the last great thing they did like, was to hold that contest. Yeah, like back back in the day, like when we first started going there, to uh, they would actually let us, or we would actually go together in uh, our sci-fi clubs, and we would actually uh, volunteer our time for the uh, KTH pledge uh, drives. And it was back and a lot more well done back then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I miss the old PBS pledge drives. I mean, it's gone now because, you know, things like Doctor Who are on, you know, BBC America, which is great. They know how to promote it, but there's a bit of that um again, it's that it's that homegrown kind of mm-hmm. uh, word of mouth quality I I do miss about it. And I realize in a way it's kind of like it's it's my show, don't take it away, but on the other hand, you know, it is a good trade-off for it to be so well known now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the PBS stations have become a bit cookie cutter. Unfortunately, they they there used to be some really unique ones out there. Yeah, um, but right. So the Vasha Narada, and I will post the link to that segment, uh, which I'm glad is still up, so people can, can see, <laughs> it and see you guys talking about it. And I know we're Keep all fine. We were confused and tired. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the last things we shot, wasn't it? Yeah. And, uh, Doesn't we were... Bob look great though? But. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. Um, but no, uh, talk me through a little bit because I I was really blown away by those helmets and the and the ingenious method you had putting the um, the skull faces to pop down when you needed them to. Can I just say one thing? I, I think it was pretty funny watching the video again for the first time uh, of the actual masquerade. We really didn't have the audience at all. They really just didn't quite get our cost. No, and then until we until we brought the uh, skulls down. Oh yeah, so we're, I'm trying to interpret for Brian. Oh here. okay, sorry. What he's I'm... saying is switching <laughs> topics slightly is that when we did the masquerade, we had the uh, uh, slight uh, interesting situation of coming on right before your uh, right after your group of third right. doctors, mm-hmm. which the audience loved, and uh, they wanted more of that. And out comes these two dorks in white suits, <laughs> and uh, they were really not that interested at I that know, point. Like, we really didn't have any. Like, no, it was no interest. It, was like, it, it took us quiet. about 30 seconds until, uh, so we did a thing on stage where we get attacked by the Vashtanarada, which was not entirely clear, perhaps, to the audience. But then uh, we had a button where we could drop the skull face in front of our real faces, and then we would turn around, and then the audience would go nuts and lose all our jokes. Yes. <laughs> really sold it well, though. You think? Oh, completely. Because we always felt it, we, it didn't go as well as we had planned it. <laughs> Well, you guys did win the award. Like at first, you guys won the award, and we're like, "Oh, well, you know, that's that's cool." I mean, we know we went, you know, we were out class in terms of the actual costume Aww. build, Thank you know. You. And I remember as we rehearsed it backstage, uh, Meta was watching us, and you were, I think, just so zoned or nervous, you weren't reacting at all. So <laughs> we we were like, "We're not funny. We're not funny. We're gonna bomb." <laughs> yeah, oh my I, was, God. I wasn't reacting. 
no, no. I, I, so, so the thing is, backstage, I am just fear bunny. I, I, my heart is beating really fast. I don't hear what anyone's saying. I really hate being on stage. And the, those two, three hours leading up to getting on stage is the worst moments in my life. And the 30, actually, no, three seconds after I get off stage is the best moments in my life because now I don't have to go on stage anymore. Well, so, yeah, I, I was not literally, but metaphorically peeing my pants. And yeah. that's why I wasn't reacting because you guys were funny. You were actually making it easier for me because you took my mind off. Yeah, you guys, were, you guys were distracting us from the crap that we were doing. <laughs> you also sort of saved us. I don't know if, if, you, uh, if you know this, but because I'd seen the act several times backstage, I knew how long it was. Mm -hmm. And so when we were waiting for you guys to finish up, we knew exactly where we were all at at all times because we knew how you guys were exiting the stage one by one. So that's how I knew that we were in trouble when all of our lights suddenly went off and there were only three doctors left on stage. <laughs> and so we knew exactly how long we had to get our helmets off and get the lights turned back on because apparently they'd been on auto timers yeah, they're, they're and, <laughs> and get everything back on again. But if you look at the pictures, uh, when I turn around away from the audience, my hair is sticking out in the back of the helmet because we had to get the helmet on so quickly we didn't have time to look at that. Uh, but so you guys uh, sort of saved our asses there. Yeah, right. Yeah, otherwise, we would have walked out with any lights on. It wouldn't have looked as interesting. No. Um, again, I'll have to put I'll have to put links not only to the KTEH but these skits uh, again, just to uh, remind people uh, what the heck we're talking about. If you were not there uh, in um, wow, two thousand nine. Oh, if you have a good copy of that skit, I would I would like to see it. <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah. I actually love a copy of even the 2008 Masquerade, which briefly was up on Google Video of all places. I know, and then disappeared. Yeah. And then disappeared, and and had I been more tech-savvy back then, I would have pulled it down for myself, but uh, I wasn't, sadly, and I can't find it, and I've been trying to find anybody, because that, that's the only skit we did. I don't have a copy of a period at this point. I have, t I have talked to a guy from the East Coast that supposedly has it, that has promised it to me, but uh, I've waited a few years now. So if you hear this... Uh, man whose name I can't remember right now I still want a copy <laughs> uh, yes I would say try to reach him again I, I will try again on my end and uh, hopefully one of these days it'll happen although obviously I'm no longer holding my breath um, but the, the actually I, I would say that what you guys do you, you guys have, have good camera operators taking shots of the thing because when you're up there on stage you're probably not going to remember half of what happens so being able to see that afterwards is really really nice and so you guys always do a great job of documenting what you've done because it's sort of a one-shot performance in a lot of ways. It's it's a fleeting it's a fleeting art piece that once it's done, it's it's done. And so you kind of want a reminder of it. Absolutely. So the mistake that we always make is we never freaking get it filmed. Yeah, we we did actually for the Vashon Narado, we gave a, a, a camera or my crappy camera to a friend of ours who actually got front row seats, but she was so low in the front that it was like a really just a bad angle. Well, the the other key point there is don't buy a crappy camera. Well, this is true. <laughs> borrow a good one. <laughs> borrow a good one. Yes, it's a good idea. I, I have learned the hard way now that uh, yeah, starting from here on out, since I am you know kind of running the whole cosplay track and everything, that I'm going to start bringing my recorder now. In addition to doing these podcasts, I want to start recording the uh, the cosplay panels, and I want to literally uh, take my camera and just shoot the masquerade, and then just offer the raw footage to whoever wants it because i figure i can't trust them nice. anymore yeah, you know that would be nice if someone wanted to do that as a service and it didn't charge anyone like you could give them a digital copy or something like here give me your thumb drives and i will load it for you and then at the end of it you get a dvd out of that it. that was probably one of my favorite moments when meta freaked somebody out in in a performance it was actually just because we we're doing the rehearsal the guy in front of us didn't realize meta had a mohawk and she was wearing just the troll head with the mohawk on it. And when she pulled her helmet off to talk to the guy, her mohawk popped back up and it freaked him out like terror in his face. He's like, oh my goodness, another mohawk. <laughs> I just love the look on that man's face. I will never forget that. Yeah, we did, uh, we did Warcraft 2 costumes at Costume Con. And uh, about 10 seconds into our skit, realized that Costume Con attendees are not video game players. Yep. <laughs> like maybe the audience got the got the joke. Yeah, wah, wah. we took it. We realized later we had to take it to WonderCon, and WonderCon, they crowd got it. They they understood. They were mostly gamers, anyways. Mm. Yeah, no. It's again. This gets back to something Scott and Ewan and I were talking about uh, in another podcast, and that is knowing your venue and knowing and where to bust out the character. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, because w with the international ones, for some reason, they are not great for video game characters. I've I've yeah. seen more than one of them not do very well, which is kind of 
sad, but but something like Comic Con, yeah. you totally have your your target audience. We did uh, we, we did our Doctor Who costumes so as one big group. We took all of our costumes uh, and threw them into one entry with our friends wearing the costumes we couldn't wear. We realized about a couple hours before the mass raid that the special preview screening of the first episode of the Eleventh Doctor was going to be shown at the same time as the Masquerade. So there went our target audience. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Look, yeah, luckily it ended up being that they had uh, two screenings, so we did get a few we people. Did, yeah, we did get a few Doctor Who fans in the audience because uh, they still they still were hollering for us. So, But that's actually a, a piece of advice, too, I can offer, is that if you're doing a, a relatively obscure character or you think that the audience doesn't know your character that well... Do your masquerades get, if you're going to do something other than just a walk-on, do something that can still have a general appeal so that the rest of the audience can still enjoy it. Because even though judges are not supposed to be swayed by audience and uh, audience reaction shouldn't really count for anything, you know, we're all human. So it, it, it will probably have a little bit of impact. Plus, your role as a masquerade attendee is, from the convention's point of view, is to entertain the convention. Yeah, and they most of the time really want to be entertained, and so uh, doing something that that's going to interest everyone is only in your best interest. Totally agreed. I mean, it's fine to do the walk on, you know, of course, if it's your first time. But if you can do a little something, it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a solid five minute skit. But as long as you do something, you know, a little bit of business up there, I think it always helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we 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 uh, had Cassandra at two different conventions. The first one was Silicon, which is a very sort of general sci fi convention. And there we played it really straight. We just sort of stuck to, to a straight interpretation of the character. So that well, by the time we took her to Gala, we were actually really excited to get into that masquerade because we knew that every single person in this room is going to know exactly what this character is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can really have fun with it. And I think we really mess around with our characters. And we went silly, we went really yeah. silly with that skit. I remember that skit very well. So we, we really play around with our characters a lot more at Galley than we do anywhere else, and I think that's why we really enjoy doing the Masquerade. Um, but uh, So I know we kind of lost the track, but back to the actual Vasha Narada. <laughs> uh, what possessed you to, to, you know, to do the choice of, um, well, I mean, of course you had to do the skulls, but of like how to make that a real-life you know, change of oh. presto, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, that one was more of a, a bit of a masochistic move, as I yes, remember it, it was. which was we didn't have to do it, but we, come on, wouldn't it be fun if... And, and the funny thing was a lot of people expected what we probably would have had as our, not our first option, but our backup option if everything else failed in the idea of the skull mm-hmm. uh, thing, which would be just have a, a sheet of plastic that you that was black that you push around your face mm-hmm. to get your screen to go black, like, you know, right right before the Vashtarada got them uh-huh. uh, and instead we had a sort of a, a semi three-dimensional skull that came downwards but the thing was that thing was sort of run by gravity mainly yes. and, and the little hook that held it in place and it was shall we say a little bit of last minute dodgy engineering so we were not 100 percent sure it was actually going to work yes, when I, we got up there i, I master in jiggery pokery <laughs> <laughs> it was very jiggery pokery it was like it was literally a spring-loaded button in the side of the helmet that you push in with like a little captain hook kind of hook and it would just let <laughs> the wire that was holding the uh the little skull cat or the little skull mask and it would just literally fall down we had to weight it with uh like you know like uh, screws from a, a metal nut and screw <laughs> bolt uh, just so it would come down over the face and you had to make sure you were at a certain angle yeah, that's why we least. had to shake our head kind of at, at a downward 15 degree angle to get the thing to go I th- down i think that was more of the sort of uh let's make sure we are far enough forward that it will exactly, actually yeah. go down because i do not want to turn around and not have a skull face like half my- a skull <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a classic who interpretation of a new who monster, actually. Yes, yes I, I half human, half totally skull. <laughs> no, it's the wobbly costume instead of the wobbly set. Yes, there you go. Now what? Now what lit it up? Because I remember it had a great blue hue once it was down. Funny thing was, you know those? Uh, they, I don't know. They were kind of hip for a while. Uh, it was those ear lights for reading. Oh. It, it, you know, you clip it around your ear, kind of like those. It looks uh, like a things. yeah. It looks like a Bluetooth set. Instead of a Bluetooth set, it was a. It was a blue light. No, actually, no. Those were white lights. It was like a little white light with a pivot mount. Uh, basically, it was just an LED with a little wire going into a little uh, pivoted handle that you could just kind of turn and aim towards the page, so you could sit in your you know chair or bed and read. See, I mean, 
doing proper electronics, uh, you know, props to that. I don't think we're quite there yet on that. I mean, we do rewire a fair amount of stuff. Yeah. But there are there are a lot of little cheap, uh, durable uh, flashlights of various sizes and that you can yeah. use for all sorts of stuff. And there's like also the a lot of light up toys that you can take apart. Um, so a lot of the sort of uh, hacked up electronics is, is yeah. often the easiest way to go in that stuff unless you need something really specific. But as we discovered, uh, our flashlights that we had bought had that five minute off timer. Yeah. So uh, you might need to first. be aware of that. <laughs> they have they have now been rewired, but um, it was a really awful point to discover that right as we were about to go on stage. Yeah. But uh, this is a good point to say, uh, knowing when to make something like your helmets and knowing when to say, say, take a found item and modify it into your costume. Oh, yeah, because yeah. you know what? Like that that had been suggested. What do we do for a helmet? Do we want to look at an actual space, like a like a a costume helmet and then just modify it? Or do we want to make something from scratch? And we actually did go to a, a costume shop, one of our best ones in our area, and we looked at their space helmet. No, wasn't like, much. No. <laughs> uh, the, but I mean, the other thing, I think the more poignant one on that particular costume is the suit, because we knew exactly what they had used in the show, yeah. which was a Sparco six print or something, or, yeah. something like that. It's an actual racing suit. So all they did on the show, because apparently Louise hated to do spacesuits. <laughs> They bought these racing suits, stripped off the logos, and that's it. That's what you see in the show. It's just a racing suit. Yeah. So if you look at the the Stig on top, top gear, top gear, he he wears almost an identical suit to the Vashonarana. But yeah, so so in, we knew we were doing the masquerade, so we couldn't just go out and buy the racing suit because we can't get judged on a bot piece. Oh, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Then we we sort of disqualify ourselves. Well, not only that, but the more the more stuff that you have that's purchased uh, for, if you're trying to go in for workmanship, mm-hmm. the less they look at it. Like, they well, they look even, more at just the parts you make. Even presentation. Yeah. If, if you have a lot of purchased parts, that's going to really count against you. So, plus, we enjoy doing making things ourselves. We don't really enjoy sourcing it that much. I, I know a lot of people really like that. Um, because there's a there's a real art to that of finding the exact item. Oh yes. Um, but <laughs> for us, that sort of masochistic enjoyment is in. I don't have a pattern. I don't know what I'm going to make it out of. But that's what it's going to look Let's like. Let's wing it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's totally in the spirit of the doctor. It's also apparently really hard to find a pattern. That's just a basic pattern for a jumpsuit or a suit of any kind, like a one piece suit. So we ended up buying a. A pattern for a costume Elvis '70s suit, like that that white disco suit he had, and uh, sort of modding it extremely heavily, uh, and and sewing the suits out of that. And I mean, no, but I mean, I think even when when you're going to recreate something out of current Doctor Who, a lot of it will be fashion clothing that they just don't make anymore. Yeah. So you have to make it. It's a lot of hard stuff. But especially with the old series, I mean, hardly any of that exists for purchase anymore. We had to do a cowboy outfit recently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when she said had to, we, <laughs> we, we had forced ourselves. We really to do wanted it. <laughs> to do a cowboy outfit. And, uh, the kind of boots and gun belts that they used in 60s, 70s Westerns to represent the 1880s. No one Wild makes West, them anymore. No one makes them anymore. They just don't exist. And so we ended up making our own gun holsters. And, you know, because th- there was nothing to buy like what we wanted. Yeah, and now we know how to use leather. He was really terrified of leather. It, yes, was, it was, was very interesting to see. Leather was my bane until I tried it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is so easy. What was I thinking? Oh my. I, 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 was, I, I literally facepalmed myself when I saw how easy it was. Because I thought it would take a lot more like tools and a lot more, you know, engineering and you're just going to have to sit there and go uh, ru- ru- like wrestle with it forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you wet it and you stretch it over something, you're like, Oh my goodness, this is like, I can do this in my sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, did you guys use the same method to light up the Ood eyes as the Sutek eyes? Oh yes. Actually, how did you spot that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing. Right. Okay. So, so here's the funny thing. And that was one of those things where I, I baited for weeks, whether I was going to do it a certain way or not. And I literally ended up finding jumbo LEDs that were big enough and bright enough that they could stand alone instead of having to use like a flashlight eyeball. Um, and what I did was I took 
you know those plastic shells that you can get at like a hobby shop like Michael's, which are like these two halves of plastic globe that you put together and you can hang it on a Christmas tree, just fill it with stuff like tinsel or maybe like a photograph or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I took that, traced out the shape of the eye, and then I dremeled it out. And then I kind of cleaned it up a little bit and polished it. And then what we did is we sprayed it with this um, was it, like a Fro- glass etching. No, no, like a frosting like spray. A frosting like, spray. like you would use on your windows for Christmas. Yeah, like... And you buy it like a, like at Michael's, or I bought mine at the uh, fabric store, right? Because it diffuses the light, and then you can't actually see the light bulb behind it. Yeah, and then what I did was I hand painted for like the uh, the oud. I hand painted the color of the eye in hand in the back of the the glass or the plastic. So the the outer side is smooth and glossy. The inside's all kind of roughed up and and like it diffuses the light, and then you can easily paint the color into it. And that's why the oud appear to have those, when they're normal, they have the two, uh, the, the iris, the retina, and the eyeball separate from each other. And then yeah. when you turn the light on red, they all disappear, and it just becomes this little tiny black dots, and then the rest it's all red. Yeah, so everything is painted onto sort of the semi-translucent uh, frosting, and behind it, it's dark, so it just kind of looks white and glossy. Yeah. So the white and the yellow turn into red. So where's your actual visibility? Oh, it's actually through those little the grid pattern. This took us forever because we had to sit and study their oud until yeah. we figured out where their they put their yeah. eye holes. And then it gets so we just that we out. just matched it up. Uh, it's those bumpy bits next to their nose, mm-hmm. act holes between them. It's kind of like looking like out of an, a fly's eye. You're literally seeing lots of little holes, and you're seeing it. You're seeing a vague image of everything. Uh, that's kind of how they were able to walk around. But the thing is that the oud, the actual oud, had much less visibility. They had to be led around most of the time. As where we can kind of see out the grid pattern and out the tentacles a bit. Like you can kind of see mm. your feet a little bit or right yeah. in front of your feet. Uh, so going downstairs is actually not as hard with the oud with the way we did it. Uh, anyway, the, but was the same principle used on the um, oud globes? Oh, actually, that was different. Um, are you familiar with those new uh, flashlights everyone's got now? It's like the little, you press the button in the back and it's got like five or six little super bright LEDs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we broke those open. I took two of them for each oud ball and then I, I rewired them so they have one on the bottom, one on the top. And then I took these tiny little globes, did the same thing. I sprayed them with the frost, covered those little balls, mounted them to the center of the ball. And then I mounted a, a what they call a, a dead man switch. Uh, button so while you're holding the button down the light is on and then when you let go it's off so we could do the talking thing so because like they would only have the ball on when they're talking right yeah mm-hmm. so basically that's all hard hardwired into the ball and then the batteries can be easily accessed you just un- oh yeah and the ball is pretty funny it's actually hamster balls that we ordered from england they're like the little white it's the little battery powered hamster that you put on the floor and just drives around entertain kids and uh, that 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 one's funny because we were convinced we had the right thing for that one like yeah we sourced the right ball the right plastic ball for this and uh turned out they're a little too big so they're clearly not the actual <laughs> ball i actually ended up asking uh neil gorton and rob Mayer, who were at the convention that year mm-hmm. what they used and they had a whole supply site for various shaped plastic balls so uh yeah they just went and bought them <laughs> yeah they, they go oh, we need this size ball so uh, our, our whole uh, Amazon shopping but, in the UK on hamster balls. But the cool part about ours was the hamster balls would spin and lock <laughs> so the balls would stay together. Yeah. And then for the clip, it's interesting. We just, I just bought two really cheap, uh, what do you call them? Uh, measuring tape, tapes. Measuring tape yeah. uh, things. And I pulled the clip off and then uh, sunk it into the back of the ball so that we could clip it onto our shirt. But, but to add another little nugget of advice <laughs> <laughs> is uh, – a lot of the time, it's really hard to find that specific thing you're looking for, and so the rest of the year, if you're not co- when you're not costuming, like if you're like us and you only costume sort of part of the year, uh, go around to like hardware stores and and random houseware stores. Hobby and, shops are good too. Yeah, hobby shops, all sorts of stores, and just sort of check out what they have. Like go to IKEA, look at the various shaped plastic like things. Yeah, the little plastic bins, like you big just stuff. Never know when that's going to come in handy. You go, I know exactly where to get this thing. Yeah, like costumers like ourselves who actually build a lot of stuff from scratch, you tend to, when you're just shopping, you will look at things and go, oh, that could almost make a perfect shoulder piece for a costume I'm working on later. Like you just kind of, you, your brain naturally just starts to see the world objects as potential costume pieces. It's a surprising amount of uh, styrofoam disappearing from Brian's work and reappearing in, in our costumes, house. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And that's where we lose the signal for this week's episode.
be back here next time for the second half of my chat with Brian and Meta. And if you have any ideas, questions, comments, go to CostumeStationZero.com and I'll be happy to answer you. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time here on Costume Station Zero.